0: You know, if you've been a Christian, even for just a little while, you will have had many opportunities to be foolish in how you fail to follow after Christ. Today, Isaiah helps us to catch a vision for the glory of God, that God works in his people and in this world so that we would reject the folly and instead do what? Walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands so what the, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled and each one is brought low, do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high, high tower, and against every fortified wall, against the ships of Tarshish, and against the beautiful craft. And, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter the caves of the rock and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man, in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, sometimes a stiff rebuke is what we need. We're, we're thankful um, that the words of Isaiah aren't just for that generation, but for today too, for your people. May we give up our foolish ways and maybe walk in the light of the Lord. Because you've been with us by your spirit today, eliminating your words so that we can love you more and live for you more, we pray. Amen. Well listen to this letter that a female college student once wrote to her parents. Dear Mom and Dad, I'm so sorry to be so long in writing you. Unfortunately all my stationery was destroyed the night our dormitory was set on fire by the demonstrators. I'm out of the hospital now and the doctors say that my eyesight should return sooner or later. The wonderful boy, Bill, who rescued me from the fire, kindly offered to share his little apartment with me until the dorm is rebuilt. (laughs) He comes from a good family, so you won't be surprised when I tell you we're going to be married. In fact, since you've always wanted a grandchild, you'll be glad to know that you'll be grandparents in several months. (laughs) Signed, Your Loving Daughter. O.P.S. Please disregard the above practice in English composition. There was no fire, I haven't been in the hospital, I'm not pregnant, and I don't even have a steady boyfriend, but I did get a D in French and an F in chemistry, and I just want to be sure you receive the news in proper perspective. (laughs) Proper perspective. You know, it, it matters in virtually every facet of our lives. Proper perspective when it comes to marriage, who am I to marry, to parenting, to selecting a career, or even deciding which flavor of ice cream, right? I remember when I was uh, so little, I couldn't see over um, the ice cream cooler in to see what was inside, and, and so sometimes my parents would hoist me up so that I could look in and see for myself. Now, if perspective is important with everything in life, including ice cream. How much more important is perspective when it comes to life itself, right? At least subconsciously, every human being is trying to uncover life's big questions. Why am I here? What value does my life have? So perspective is critical. Isaiah does just that for us. Today Isaiah is hoisting us, he's lifting us up over the ice cream cooler, so to speak, to give us proper perspective. And understand this, there is no higher vantage point for us to gain perspective than the view from heaven itself. From there we come to see that we were made by God, for God, and that life only has meaning and purpose and joy when God is our greatest good. In verse 1, Isaiah saw a vision from God concerning the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem, remember the capital city it's the place of God's temple. And what God says through Isaiah is this Oh, the plans I have for this world. Oh, the plans I have for my people. Through them, the world will know and delight in me. I will be the source of the world's joy and happiness and prosperity. When God's people come alive in the gospel, captivated by God and his glorious vision, just look out. And so Isaiah this morning helps us to set our hearts on God. And listen, not just to believe in him, but to delight in him. For that is what changes us. The big idea today is that Isaiah calls us to walk in this perfect perspective of God's of his light so that we can live with great purpose. We're gonna divide our time under two headings. First, God's vision to embrace, and then man's folly to reject. First, God's vision. And the big idea of this point is that God's vision for the world and for his people is so spectacular that it alone must captivate our souls. Think about all the times you've known something to be true and yet your heart delights in something contrary, right? What comes to my mind is how some young women know, they know what is right. They know that they should date someone who is kind and nice and polite, who knows how to sit at a table and use a fork and a knife, who have a steady job, know how to comb their hair and obey the law. But for some reason... (laughs) So many end up going after the edgy dropout who lives life in the fast lane. See, we can know the truth and still desire something else, right? Now, the greatest error one can make is to know that God alone is able to satisfy all of your longings, and yet you give your heart to anything but God. That's what's happening to God's people back then, and I think it can happen to us today. Isaiah wishes to help us. In verses 2 to 4, Isaiah gives us a a heavenly perspective. He gives us a glimpse of God's vision. And he means for us to attach our hearts to it and therefore be transformed by the hope that it gives us. And and his hope is, is, is that we wouldn't just believe it but actually desire it. And therefore walk in the light of the Lord as we live life on earth for his glory and for that day to come. At the center of this vision is a mountain of the Lord uh, in Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. It's a synonym. Verse 2 begins with this image. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. There's a day coming in the future, Isaiah says. In verse 11, we read, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. All throughout scripture, God speaks of a day of glory. Latter days, when God brings about his once and for all redemption and renewal of this world. And what will it be like? Well, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be the highest of all the mountains. Now how is this possible? You know, the temple in Zion was on a hill, but there were taller hills around it. Mount, the Mount of Olives was a taller mount. But God's going to rearrange it so that his mountain in Zion will be the highest. Not so much that the mountain will physically grow, not that God can't grow a mountain. Um, but it's going with regards to importance, it will be the highest of all mountains. See, in Isaiah's day, all the various other religions, they, they believed that the mountains were the homes for their deities. And so they would erect. Altars, and they would go up and spend days and hours up in the hills bowing down to their idols that they crafted with their own hands. And so what God is saying, what is he saying? He's saying there's a day coming when the one true God is lifted up above all the false gods of the world. There will be a universal triumph of the one true God as the nations flow to it. Did you notice that? There's a flowing in and up the mountain. Verse three helps us to see that on that day, the world will come to see and delight in all of this. There we read, and many peoples shall come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Again, notice the gracious offer. Come, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. this It's an eager desire to be taught by God, the ways of God. is a deep longing to have our lives aligned with how God intends for us to live, that we may walk in his paths. Notice that all the world will flow up and into the mountain of the Lord, but also notice at the end of verse three, there's a flowing out and it makes sense. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's going out. Now notice the exclusivity When Isaiah says out of Zion, the implication is out of Zion only. There's nowhere else for mankind to turn and find meaning and purpose, fulfillment and happiness. The message of God is this. He's saying, I and I alone am God. There is no other with whom you must deal with. And how does God deal with us? It's with an invitation. Come. Come, let's go up the mountain he's not forcing anyone it's an invitation for you to come to him now the question is has this happened has this prophecy been fulfilled already and the answer is yes and no remember when Jesus told his disciples that the temple in Jerusalem was going to be toppled one day that actually happened in 70 AD so the Lord's temple is gone now why would God allow that to happen perhaps it's because he didn't need it anymore because with the death of Jesus, the temple is no longer needed. God's own son, our Lord, went to that neighboring hill called Golgotha, or Skull, and there Jesus was high and lifted up as he gave his life for us. And for 2,000 people, for uh, for 2,000 years, people from every nation on earth have been hearing this call. For 2,000 years out of Zion shall go the word of the Lord, and it continues to go out. You know, we who are gathered here today are living proof that Isaiah's words have come true. But we also know we have this deep instinct that there has got to be a greater fulfillment of this. We long for verse 4 to be established on earth. There we read, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they even learn war anymore. Oh, for that day to come. What we see here is an entire reordering of the world in peaceful splendor. You know, just in this past week alone, we witnessed Vladimir Putin threaten to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. North Korea fired two missiles off the coast of South Korea. Chinese and Russian warships were spotted holding exercises near Alaska. God is saying that there's a day coming when all warring will be go- done for good. And it won't be just because we human beings finally get it right. We finally grow up learn how to love each other better no my friends it's in our fallen nature to fight whether it be in an F-15 or sitting at our kitchen table soon the Lord says these powerful weapons of war will be turned into peaceful things tanks will become tractors what is God depicting can you see it In some ways, it's a return to Eden, right? (laughs) To the garden where Adam and Eve once walked and talked with God in the cool of the day. But far greater than Eden, why? Because God will make it so we can never go, um, so we can never turn away from him ever again. We will be changed people on that day. Now look at verse 5. It's God's exhortation to us based on what we just read. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is a call, it's a cry to God's people of every generation. The logical flow goes something like this. God is saying, my people, please see what I am up to. I know your hearts are beating for earthly happiness apart from me, but I will not be your good luck charm. I am the Lord Almighty who will in the end be loved and adored by all on earth who dwell on earth, but will you be one of them? Will you stop using me for your own personal gain? Will you stop finding your worth and identity in earthly success? I and I alone bring glory to this earth. Do you believe it? No, more so, do you delight in this? Come walk upon the earth in my light. My friends, this offer still stands for us to this very very day. Will we not just believe in God, but delight in him? Will we see how foolish it is to curate for ourselves a happy life according to our own light? We all want ice cream lives. Our problem is we cannot see into life's ice cream cooler, and so God lifts us up to see. Now, it's as if Isaiah knows how God's people will respond. And so verse 5 also serves to justify what follows. And this is literally some of the most lovely poetry in not just scripture, but in all writing. And here Isaiah describes the folly or foolishness of those who refuse to delight in God and his vision above all else. Man's folly that we must reject. The purpose of the rest of this chapter is to engender humility. That is to show us how foolish and prideful the people of God can be. Just maybe, maybe some will repent. As I read verses six through nine, notice how the people are living, the words full and filled are repeated. The people are filling themselves, but with all the wrong things, so ultimately they're truly empty. Verse 6, for you, this is the Lord, for you, Lord, have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines and they strike hands with the children of foreigner. Their land is filled with silver and gold and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Instead of going up to the mountain of the Lord to be taught the ways of God so they may walk in them, they are full of worldly wisdom. They fill themselves with love of money and they're filled with power. That's what the horses and chariots represents. The land is filled with idols, false gods that they made with their own hands. Instead of being filled with the word of God, instead of being filled with the spirit of God and walking in the light of the Lord, they turn to false gods, things that are really non-gods. It sounds foolish, but we do it too. Ray Orland Jr. writes, when believers stuff their lives full of false ideals and comforts, it's because they feel empty within. They have lost their sense of God. Understand what Isaiah is trying to communicate. He's not saying, try to be good little boys and girls and God will be nice to you. No, he's saying, can't you see? When you turn from God and walk in your own light according to the ways of the world, you become less and less human. Think it through. God made mankind in his image, right? To know him and to love him. And to reflect his goodness on earth. And God says, come, come and experience life as I've made you to experience it. Stop with the vanity. Stop with the nest building. Stop with the side hustles. Stop trying to keep me at arm's length, close enough to me to have me fix your problems, but far enough away that I don't figure into the equation. God says, come, stay. And then go into the world and invite others to come up to the path that leads to the mountain of the Lord. Lead them up the hill to the cross of Christ. Isaiah is saying, stop it with your self-salvation plan. Come and draw near. Now, Isaiah wants us to see that to not draw near is to be far from God. And from a heavenly perspective, we must see that there are consequences for keeping God at arm's length. Alec Moyer writes the word so, and that begins verse nine, is a particle of consequence. What is the consequence of you keeping God at arm's length? Look at verse nine, it's devastating. So, consequence, so man is humbled, and each one is brought low, do not forgive them. This is not man being humbled in a good way. Oh, I was humbled the other day. Now I'm good, right? No, you could translate it another way. So man is humiliated and brought to his lowest. They deserve not to be forgiven. We foolishly believe we can fill ourselves apart from God, but no, empty We truly are. When you try to find your best life apart from the nearness to God, it can only end in humiliation, and in the end, eternal rejection. Listen, when you foolishly try to find your best life apart from God, in the end, you find that you become less and less human. So there's a lot on the line. you think you're rejecting God? No. You're rejecting the only hope you have for wholeness and happiness. Can you see that? Isaiah is lifting your childish frame so you can see into the ice cream cooler of God's glory. Now, let me ask you, do you have this perspective? Do you see this? And do you now see how verses 10 and 11, that there's a day coming when everything wrong with this world will eventually be put in its proper place? God will judge it. Verse 10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, the lofty pride of man shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted that day. Everything's going to be made right. What will that day look like? Notice the word against. It appears 10 times in verses 12 through 17. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the tall ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. All the ha- and, and the haughtiness of man shall be humble, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low, The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Here again is the pattern of man's folly, our folly. All the things that fallen mankind delights in, the things that we think surely if we get them our lives will be perfect. All of these things that we chase after, these non-gods, we wrap our hopes up in them, we build our nests on earth about them. All of these things God is against because he's not involved at all in them for you. 10 times God declares he's against the pridefulness, this pridefulness that's infecting his people. Instead of lifting up their hearts and exalting the Lord alone, they have learned the ways of the nations around them. And they've looked to the nations in order to exalt themselves. The cedars of Lebanon represent great wealth. The mountains and uplifted hills emphasize the idols that they bow down to. The high tower, fortified walls, these ships of Tarshish represent military might and power. Listen, the things that the world values easily become traps for the people of God. And Christian, you know this all too well, don't you? The people of God, we're prone to lifting up all these things over and against God. God says it will one day all be brought low and the pride of mankind will be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted that day. Oh, that the Lord alone would be exalted today in God's people. Isaiah continues now with the focus upon our idols. You know, an idol, it doesn't have to be something we craft with our hands and put up high on a hill and bow down. That looks foolish. But the idols we have are just as foolish. Anything that you look to other than God to give you significance or relief or escape or power, that is an idol that you bow down to. Isaiah says that one day we will all be gone. That's the perspective we need to see. And those who persist in holding on to their idols will end up trembling in fear. And they're going to be throwing them at bats and moles and hiding in caves. Justice will be served. Verse 18. And all the idols shall utterly pass away. And the people shall enter into the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground. They're running. Before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold. The things they treasure, they're just going to throw them away. And where will they go? They made these things to worship. They're going to throw them to the moles and to the bats, to the most unclean creatures in God's economy, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, (coughs) from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. If you continue to live your life as if God isn't the greatest glory to behold, then in the end, you will find that you had it wrong all along. Ortland writes, the key here is the incongruity of their idols of silver and their idols of gold being thrown like trash to the moles and the bats. Pride deceives people into assembling an idol-filled culture because idolatry, what, gives people a feeling of control and power. They make the things they worship. But when the Lord stands forth in unmistakable glory, it it will be terrible for those who do not delight in his control and his power. They will see how worthless our most, most dearly cherished idols really are, and they will have nothing left worth having. Idols are precious. They are always our hard-won silver and gold. That's why we prize them. They are beautiful, but also contemptible. <laughs> Tolkien um, portrayed this in The Lord of the Rings, right? Everyone who wears the golden ring of power Morphs into something weirdly subhuman, right? Like Gollum, who cherishes it as my precious. And so for Middle Earth to be saved, the ring must be thrown into the fire of Mount Doom and destroyed forever. See, Tolkien understood something. He understood that the key of life is not only what we lay hold of, but also what we throw away. And so the question for us today is this What golden ring idols do we cherish as essential for our happiness? Right now, what are we holding on to? What must we throw away to possess the one treasure that, that really we cannot live without, which is Christ Himself? Guess what? When you come to Christ, He does not make you weirdly subhuman. <laughs> He makes you more and more beautiful, like himself. But to do that, we have to give up our power and allow him to gain power over us. It's not something we people like very much. So we keep God at arm's length, and we call on him when we're in trouble, and we say, stay away when we're making our plans. Isaiah explains the power of humility in our final verse, and we're going to end here. It's an exhortation based on the perspective we just gained regarding this Folly of man! It reminds me a little bit of Ecclesiastes. Our life is really vapor. Stop regarding man, in whose nostrils is breath. Who gives breath? Our, who blows life into us? In the garden, uh, when God created man, God blew, breathed life into us. Stop regarding man, in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? Perspective, there it is. We think of ourselves as sophisticated, <laughs> but the fact is we are so easily impressed and led astray by the things of this world, and our self confidence keeps us from walking in the light of the Lord. So God is calling us, He's calling us to take a bold step. The greatest need of man is to reject man, that, may we, that we may come alive in Christ, right? Our greatest need is to reject man in manly ways. When I say man, of course, humankind, right? We must take the precious rings we cling to and throw them into the fire, of Mount Doom. Orlin adds some good questions for our reflections. He asks listen, and try to answer this in your head. Don't shout it out out loud. <laughs> um, do you believe that there is enough glory in God to make you happy forever? If you don't, why? What failing have you found in God? See, the gospel promises that his glory will remake the world. So stop valuing the idols that you must inevitably lose. Learn to enjoy God. And truly living this way is an exercise of faith, is it not? You really have to believe this in order to walk this way. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper, ask yourself, do I believe that the Lord is the only source of life for me? And if so, do I value above all things living my life under the light of God? If so, take a moment to reflect upon the idols that you continue to cling to, and I will think upon mine. And listen, come to mentally despise them and then throw them into the fire and feast on the Lord. Perspective. We must have it, right? Otherwise, our lives are pitiful. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's perspective. If you're a young person here today, ask yourself, Ask yourself, how is is my life going to be any different than every other human being who's lived with God at arm's length? How is mine going to be any different than those people? Ask yourself, what are the things that this world is telling me that I must bow down to in order to really find life? Can you see how all these things are idols? And they lead you away, actually, from the one true source of life? Oh, to be young again, and to be able to say no to the ways of the world. You have a full life ahead of you to live for God in his glory. Perspective. I think we have it. Now, Grace Presbyterian Church, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Isaiah, well, Father, thank you for the, I was going to say gentle rebuke, but that was pretty harsh. As your servant, I see this passage speaks to me. I know it speaks to your people, because in many ways your people haven't changed over all these years. We are utterly dependent upon your grace, upon your mercy, upon you feeding us with the truth of your word, so that we can once again grab a hold of it, delight in it. May we do that now. May we cast aside whatever sin is hindering us in this hour and come to this table and feed on Christ and find our hope and happiness in him. Amen.